Yeah, I mean, I guess the most important thing to remember about an accent is that every single one of us speaks with an accent, right? We're from a certain place. Hello, you're listening to Linguistically Aware, a spoken word program about the ways we use, understand, and think about language. I'm Dusha Nikolic, and today I sat down with Dr. Mary O'Brien to debunk a number of myths about accents and language learning and teaching. Dr. O'Brien is an Associate Dean at the Faculty of Graduate Studies at the UFC. She is also an Applied Linguist and a Professor of German. Before you tune in to our conversation, it is essential to acknowledge that this is CJSW 90.9 FM broadcasting on the traditional territories of all the people who made their homes in the Treaty 7 of Southern Alberta. Uh, I know you're, you're a applied linguist and you have a course at the University of Calgary, uh, experiments in applied linguistics. Can you tell us something more about that? What is, uh, what is applied linguistics? How is it different from linguistics as well? I'm ha- First of all, I'm happy to be here today, Dushan, um, and to talk a little bit about what I do um, when I'm doing research and teaching. So applied linguistics is this broad field that really begins with an understanding of how language works. So that's the linguistics portion of it, right? We need to have a really solid understanding of language. But the difference between applied linguistics and linguistics is that we take it a step further And we apply what it is that we know and that we've learned from, let's say, experimentation to solving real world problems. So this can include, for example, policy work. So, for example, on official languages or which languages are taught in schools or um, work on language assessment. So um, work that I've done recently on English language proficiency requirements also relates to applied linguistics. So and it extends into work on language teaching. So the course I'm teaching this semester um, is really focused on carrying out an experimental study that I've already had approved by the ethics board. So it involves reading background research, writing a literature review, recording speech samples, programming the experiments online, recruiting participants, running the study and collecting the data and analyzing the results and then thinking about what those next steps might be in terms of the applied linguistics piece. Why is it important to know how to do this? Well, I mean, it's essential. I mean, it is possible in theory to run an applied linguistic study very quickly. You know, you can kind of say, oh, this is a, a type of study that people do all the time. I'm just going to figure out some sentences to use and then I'll test them on the speakers. I'll have them produce them and then I'll figure out some sort of training, for example. Um, I've seen that happen often, but one thing that uh, especially my graduate students know about the way I approach research is that it's really important to get it right at the beginning, right? So to kind of take a step back and to say, what is this real world language problem that we're trying to solve? 
So identifying the problem is really important before you even get started. And then thinking, okay, later on, my ultimate goal is to figure out how I can solve this problem or lead to some sort of a fruitful way of getting us closer to solving the problem, right? So it involves a lot of really careful work at those early stages. So, you know, coming up with some really good research questions, developing hypotheses that are based in previous research, um, ensuring that the kind of methods we use to collect the data are really well informed, that previous studies have used these, or maybe we're going to manipulate them a little bit, but to make sure that we're collecting data in meaningful ways. And then when it comes to actually choosing what it is that we want to test with our participants, making sure that um, our instructions are good, you know, so that that pilot testing piece, but also making sure that the kinds of, of tasks that our participants in our studies are doing are really getting at what it is that we want to know. Yeah. So I would say mm -hmm. that those early stages are so important because uh, I worked with a statistician who worked with many us, many of us over the course of the years. Yeah. And uh, one thing that he always he, said, uh, Fang, yeah. Fang, yeah. he said, uh, garbage in, garbage out, right? So if you yeah. collect bad data, how are you ever going to come up with meaningful results, right? So those early steps are so important. And there are a couple of, of uh, topics I, I would like to cover. So I would like us to debunk or just touch upon a certain, a couple of myths or maybe problems that we encounter in everyday, um, everyday life. Um, for example, one of the, uh, one of the problems that I came across uh, in, in Calgary, actually in uh, at a certain college, there is a section for um, reducing accent uh for uh foreigners i don't want to be too uh judgmental but how wrong is this what is an accent and why why do why don't we use accentedness anymore to this to the extent that we used to use it yeah i mean i guess the most important thing to remember about an accent is that every single one of us speaks with an accent right we're from a certain place so you know, especially when I go back home to listen to my family, you know, I say, whoa, I haven't been in this place for a really long time. And I noticed one of the, the really salient features of speech there, it's from the American Midwest, is that they say, yeah, right? So yeah. that's just something that you notice right away. So even though I grew up speaking English, I have an accent of variety. We usually call those dialects, right? Dialectal pronunciation. So that's a starting point. So it makes sense, you know, we've grown up speaking one language for our entire lives. Let's say we start learning another language when we're in high school. That happens all the time here in Canada. So we're at the age of 13 and we've grown really good at speaking our first language. Our pronunciation is, you know, it's, it's a native speaker's pronunciation. So then we add a second language on top of that and it only makes sense that our pronunciation, which we've been working on for all of these years, is going to be influenced by that of our first language. And we call that a foreign accent. So it's completely normal to speak with a foreign accent. And in fact, research has shown that learning a second language after about the age of three 
most of the time results in a foreign accent. And so, you know, just to, to come from the understanding that it's normal, it's not an illness, that people who speak with a foreign accent are just as smart, just as friendly, just as likable as anyone else, I think is a really important starting point, right? So it's normal. And then on top of that, we're not going to get rid of accents, right? So engaging students in accent reduction courses, first of all, makes them think that they can get rid of their accent. Perhaps more importantly, or more detrimentally, it also tells them that how they speak is, is not okay, right? That they should be aiming for something that's unattainable. So what we like to say instead is that we work to encourage more comprehensible speech, speech that can be understood. So whereas we're probably not going to get rid of those accents, there's a lot that we can do to make speech more comprehensible. How do you assess whether somebody has a comprehensible, whether somebody is comprehensible or intelligible? And can somebody or anyone attain this native-like pronunciation? Is that uh, the re realistic goal? So I'm not going to say that no one can sound like a native speaker, but we call those really exceptional circumstances. There have been some studies looking at those exceptional speakers, and really they're trying to find out precisely what those characteristics are so that we might recreate those. And ultimately, what we can say right now is that those people are highly exceptional, right? So that's the starting point. But when we're talking about intelligibility and comprehensibility, it really has to do with understanding, a listener's understanding of speech. So I've carried out both kinds of studies and the big difference is just kind of how we, how we test understanding. So with comprehensibility, what we do is we present, present listeners with a speech sample and we have them rate it on a nine point scale usually. Sometimes there are bigger scales. Um, I've done some research with a colleague where we used a thousand point scale, but ultimately what it does is requires listeners to rate along a continuum how easy or difficult it is for them to understand what's being said. So we're not actually testing precise understanding of a given word or a given sentence, but just, okay, ease or difficulty in understanding. Whereas intelligibility studies look more at the actual understanding. So what we might have listeners do is to transcribe the speech as they hear it, or maybe answer some questions about the speech sample, or, you know, um, those could be um, entering words somewhere or doing a multiple choice sort of task. Ultimately, it seems <laughs> um, intelligibility tasks take a bit more time. And really, even though they seem to be perhaps a bit more objective, research has shown that intelligibility and comprehensibility are so closely intertwined and highly correlated that when we're as researchers trying to decide, oh, am I going to do this time-consuming intelligibility task or will I have my listeners rate for comprehensibility, it seems it's really okay to go ahead and do these comprehensibility ratings. Hello, you have tuned in to CGSW 90.9 FM radio station. You're listening to Linguistically Aware and I'm talking with Dr. Mary O'Brien, we are debunking certain myths about language learning and teaching. Stay tuned for the upcoming content. Uh, so we busted one myth, I guess. Um, 
uh, that there that everyone has has an accent. I think that's that's a good point. I want to ask you about the uh, the difference in uh, language acquisition between children and adults. There is a myth that children are better learners of a language. Is this true or is this necessarily true? It is not true. (laughs) But, you know, if only if all we're doing is looking at outcomes, then we can say every normally developing child acquires a first language and they're basically perfect at it, right? They, they sound like a native speaker, they use grammar correctly, they have these intuitions about language, but let's take a step back. <laughs> um, so outcomes for kids are native-like. That's an important thing to remember, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're better. So first of all, kids are incredibly inefficient language learners. So if you think about the time, the amount of time that babies and young children spend learning a language, it's incredible, right? You know, we talk about this 10,000 hour rule to become an expert at something. Well, you know, kids have a lot more than 10,000 hours to become experts at using language. So they start out by babbling, they produce single words, they get all this input, lots of repetition, lots of praise, right? And so that for the first couple of years of life, of course, kids are learning so many things about their environment and everything else, but it's really intricately tied to language. So they are spending so much time on this process of language acquisition. Whereas when we're learning a language after puberty, let's say in middle school or high school, or even in university or beyond, we have to be really efficient about it. (laughs) We're doing so much more than learning language, right? We have this, you know, maybe an hour a day, three to five times a week to really focus on what we're doing in the classroom. And then maybe we've got some homework and maybe we have some vocabulary to learn, right? So actually, we're being very efficient. So within a couple of weeks, even for example, we can carry on little mini conversations. We can make up sentences creatively that we've never heard before, right? We can engage with other speakers. So ultimately, of course, our outcomes are not going to be the same, but it's pretty amazing what adults can do with language. And there are some, we talked about those exceptional learners who just get it. You know, they can do it more quickly. They can sound more like native speakers. They've got these intuitions that are really good about language. Um, But ultimately, it's pretty amazing. You know, even in spite of all this variation that we see among adults, that, um, you know, we're actually pretty good at it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing um, that we can achieve a lot. I, I want to follow up on that and ask you, Uh, What do we need to learn a language efficiently? Uh, So, for example, I know that motivation is very important. It's highly relevant. Then there is also your your emotional state at certain times and so on and so forth. What are some of the key features or properties that we need to have in order to efficiently learn a language? So in terms of efficiency, I would say that one of the most important things to have, especially kind of at this post-pubescent stage, is some sort of rule-based 
right? So, you know, whereas with kids, all we're doing is bombarding them with input and they can get it. They can kind of form that system. In order to have that efficiency as an adult, you need to figure out some way to categorize this incoming knowledge, right? So if ultimately what we're looking for is grammatical accuracy, so, you know, syntax and morphology, then we're going to need some sort of overarching structure so that we can figure out how to put these building blocks of language together in meaningful ways, right? That are going to be more or less grammatically correct, right? So these, these rules, some sort of sense of, of metalinguistic knowledge, so kind of um, understanding that language can be an object of study, that we can manipulate things. But also, so on top of that, though, we need to kind of have this sense of, of willingness to take risks, I guess. So um, we need to lower those inhibitions because ultimately, if what we're trying to do is to converse, and all we're doing is trying to apply rules all the time, it's going to be a really stilted sort of conversation. Right? So if our ultimate goal is to interact with other people, we need to say, okay, I'm just gonna do what I can with this language and I'm going to try to get my point across, use the rules as best I can, but not let those rules inhibit me to, from actually trying to converse with somebody. So there is another uh, myth, so to say, or problem there. What is necessary for, for adults to, to learn a language? Uh, do we first learn grammar and uh, how to pr- uh, produce something, how, a pronunciation? Or do we also, can we also learn from listening and reading? So I guess the big question is, what is our ultimate goal, mm-hmm. right? What do you want to do with language? What does it mean to be able to, to use a language, right? So are we interested in the ability to interact? Well, if we want to have that ability to interact, then we had better be able to listen, right? We need to develop those listening skills. We need to develop those speaking skills. We need to have, for example, enough vocabulary. Vocabulary is really a cornerstone, uh, regardless of, of which skill you want to use, right? You, have, you need to understand what it, how to say what it is that you want to say, right? We need to have enough grammar so that somebody can understand what it is that we're saying. Um, and when it comes to listening and speaking, of course, we need to have an understanding of pronunciation, of how letters are combined, um, et cetera, et cetera, right? So that, those two, those productive, or yeah, the, 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 the um, interactive skills, I guess, of speaking and listening work that way. Reading, however, is quite different in that, you know, you need a different set of skills, right? You need to be able to recognize how letters come together to form an individual word. You don't necessarily need to know how to pronounce that word. You need to connect it to meaning and you need to understand how when different words are put together on a page, what their relationships are syntactically so you can understand, for example, who is doing what to whom, right? So, you know, it's, it's a different kind of understanding that we need for reading than we do for speaking, for example, right? And then when it comes to writing, you know, that's also a different set of skills, right? So we need, you know, there's there's this expectation that when we're writing, 
we have access to different resources than we do when we're speaking. So when we're speaking, it's just kind of on the fly. Um, you know, I need to come up with those rules right away, make use of them right away. Whereas when we're writing, we can use things like dictionaries. Um, we can check a grammatical point if we're unsure about it, right? There's a lot more time to focus on the grammatical aspects of language, I guess, when we're writing, right? So I would say it's really important to think about those all as, I mean, they're intertwined skills, of course, but they are really quite different. And in, in the language classroom, I would say, um, it's really important that we focus on each of those four skills and developing each of those four skills, because frankly, they don't just develop on their own. Hello, you have tuned in to CGSW 90.9 FM radio station. You're listening to Linguistically Aware, and I'm talking with Dr. Mary O'Brien. We are debunking certain myths about language learning and teaching. Stay tuned for the upcoming content. You mentioned also that you were working on assessment or uh, English language proficiency, I think, tests. Uh, we are, for example, um, required to have an IELTS test, which is um, an official test of your English knowledge or uh, there is also a Canadian version uh, of that test, I think, a similar one. Mm -hmm. And there is a TOEFL test, um, usually a rec uh, required in America, um, in the United States. So um, I maybe I'm digressing a little bit, but I want to ask you about uh, your work on these uh, proficiency tests. What, uh, what, how, do, how are you changing these? My experience with IELTS was a not really positive one, and I still can sort of function in within the academia at a <laughs> high level. Absolutely. I know that, that there is no perfect uh, balance when you have to have a proficiency test to test everyone, but what can you change there? You know, so I have to tell you, first of all, that my work with these proficiency tests is not in the development thereof, mm -hmm. but it's related to policy at the university level. So okay. it's in my work as an associate dean in graduate studies, where I've been dealing a lot with these exams. So um, we just had to recently make the decision about whether or not we're going to accept online proficiency tests, right? Mm -hmm. So, and in doing so, I've engaged in a lot of discussions with my colleagues about precisely that, Dushan. What do these tests do and what do they not do, right? So I would say it's really important to take a step back and say, what is it that we want to know? Okay, so there are certain things that we want to know. Is this individual able to understand uh, an academically oriented written text. Okay, I would say in a lot of ways that these exams can do that, right? Is this person able to understand spoken language, right? It can test that. But then even in those two relatively simple tasks, it gets to be even more complex because when we have, you know, a written text, there's usually something about culture embedded in this text, right? So oftentimes they'll be talking about the Canadian culture or the American culture or the British culture. Well, frankly, if you don't have any experience with those cultures, you know, you haven't learned about those anywhere, it really puts you at a disadvantage 
So it's testing more than just the language itself and your ability to understand what's going on with the language. And then when it comes to listening tasks, one of the things that they like to do in these exams is to play around or to introduce speakers with different dialects, which in the real world is perhaps quite important. But if we consider where our students are coming from who take these exams, maybe they've never been exposed to, you know, a, a dialect from uh, the Southern United States, right? Yeah. So it's not just testing their ability to use language. It's really testing so much more than that. So what I've been, you know, and then there are um, issues with speaking, you know, is it actually an interaction with an individual? Is it an interaction with the computer? There are all of those issues that come into play. So I've been talking to colleagues about these issues quite a bit lately. And what I've encouraged them to do is to look beyond the language tests. If they see that there is a student who has come forward, who's enthusiastic, who has fantastic marks, you know, who seems to be a really good fit for the program, but the program isn't necessarily, necessarily sure about that individual's ability in English. I said, just go ahead and, and interview that person, yeah. right? A test score represents how a student did in responding to certain questions at one period in time. And we don't know anything else beyond that, right? It doesn't tell us about their motivation or their enthusiasm or their likelihood of success overall in the program. So that's really kind of the, the set of discussions that I've been encouraging um, among my colleagues. Who knows if I'll be successful, but that's kind of how I see assessment these days. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, hopefully you, you will succeed in, in, uh, in this <laughs> endeavor. Um, there are a couple of, for example, let's say YouTube videos or maybe even uh, blogs that say learn language in six months. Um, can we learn a language in six months? And um, can we learn a language, uh, which is a follow-up question, from TV series uh, watching and listening? So when it comes to those promises of learning language in six months, I would be very skeptical, right? So um, it really, you know, I guess it depends on how we operationalize learning. What is it that we want to be able to do, right? So if your ultimate goal is to go to Germany and to um, be a tourist, you could probably learn the vocabulary and those set expressions that you need to know in less than six months, right? You just, you know, do some sort of very specific training. You know, have you learned German? That's up for debate, right? But if really we want to have a nuanced understanding of how language works, how we can actually communicate in the language, if we want to be able to use the language in meaningful ways, not just understand what's being said, it's going to take a lot of time, first of all, and a lot of effort, right? It's not one of those things where you can just go to class three times a week and then have that be it. And I think that that's one of those things when I'm teaching beginner level language courses or even more advanced level language courses, students say, but we have homework every single day. And I say, yes, you need to have homework every single day because language takes time and effort. So that's the first thing. So I would say, if your ultimate goal is to 
interact and use the language, six months is definitely not enough, right? Um, but it, when it comes to learning the language by watching TV or movies or listening to music, I would say, no, it's not possible. But there are some things that we can learn. Uh, we can learn vocabulary, for example. We can learn certain expressions. We can memorize maybe certain uh, sentences or expressions. Also, hearing a lot of language might actually improve our pronunciation. So there is some anecdotal evidence that that might be the case. So if you grow up, for example, in a place and are only watching TV in English because your country only has subtitles and doesn't do dubbing, it might be possible for you to have better pronunciation, right? That's, that's something that's been proposed. Yeah. I don't know. I haven't studied it, but maybe, right? There's this notion of having a lot of input. But we have to remember that in the real world, language is about interaction, it's about give and take, it's about asking questions and responding, and you absolutely can't get that from TV. Is it absolutely necessary to have a native speaker teach a language? For example, uh, an English speaker needs to teach um, someone English, or a German speaker needs to teach someone German. We know that you are, uh, you're teaching German, so... You can you can uh, comment on that as well. Right. So I would say that there definitely is this idea among students and teachers alike that the best teacher in a language classroom is a native speaker. Yeah. I would argue, and research has demonstrated that that's not the case. So when it comes to my own area of research, there was just a recent study that came out that demonstrated that students' pronunciation is no different, regardless of whether they're being taught by a native or non-native speaker. Also, when it comes to just general language skills, I can tell you I've taught both English, my native language, and German, my second language, and I know a lot more about language. I've got those metalinguistic skills in German that I don't have in English. Moreover, I've made a lot of mistakes learning German, and so I can tell my students about those mistakes and what I've done to overcome them, how I've gone about learning vocabulary and, and the kind of tips and tricks that I have that a native speaker doesn't necessarily have. And so ultimately, I'm never going to say that um, you know, non-native speakers are better than native speakers ever, but I would say that we bring different things to the table, right? I don't have necessarily those intuitions that a native speaker would have, but I do have different knowledge about German that um, native speakers don't have. Thank you for, for being uh, an incredible guest. Oh, yeah. That's really sweet. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Yusha. This was my conversation with amazing Mary O'Brien, who debunked some important myths about accents and language learning. Listen to the upcoming monthly episodes of Linguistically Aware on CJSW 90.9 FM by visiting the cjsw.com slash program slash linguistically aware. If you want to know more about linguists based in Calgary, make sure to visit calgarylinguistics.ca. Have a great day and stay with us. You know you're on the right place.